Otherwise, they would have been wasting it. Yeah, that's right. And they had so much duck that it was a way of preserving it so that they would have something, you know, so that they wouldn't be wasting it because they, they didn't have a lot of other food either back when this was originally done. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Some dishes in French food come with a little side of, well, so we say controversy. Today's topic, the Compte de Canard, is one such dish. But how can we judge something so delicious? Of course, as we all know, a little bit of controversy doesn't hurt every now and then. I mean, hello, I'm the person retired from a reality cooking show and not from my cooking. So, today's guest, we will find out whilst talking to her if she's a stranger to controversy or not. But one thing I do know is that she's a passionate Francophile and passionate foodie. So, two of my favourite type of people. Louise Pritchard, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me. Merci beaucoup. Before we talk about all things Compte de Canard, I wanted to get to know you a little bit better and understand your love of food and in particular French food. Mm. I wanted to ask, your mum started your love of French food, is that right? Yes. Well, my mum actually used to, she, she wasn't a great cook, but when she did, she was a great lover of a dinner party. And when she had a dinner party, it always had... Uh, French food that was her go-to and that was her her specialty and I just adored the leftovers I adored helping her do it I loved it from beginning to end yeah what was your favorite thing that your mum uh, used to cook oh she used to do the sauces she'd do this the the, the jus the, the jus that she always made and she would reduce it and take a lot of effort time and effort with it and I think I just really that that flavour, that intenseness of the flavour was something that I really loved. She also was quite famous for her chocolate cheesecake, which was a French kind of cheesecake as well. But she, yes, that was divine. Yeah, loved it. Loved, loved, yes. She loved to entertain, you said, as a dinner parties. What do you think she loved most about uh, throwing a good dinner party? I think she just loved having people with her. She, she was just such... I mean, Mum's now passed away... It's quite lovely to reminisce about her, um, especially when she was in full flight in a dinner party. And she just, people would, she was kind of a, a people magnet. She was definitely a people person. And I think it was the connecting with people that she loved most. But then having them really love her food, it gave her such joy. I mean, she didn't always... She, it wasn't like she ate loads. She wasn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of dinner party where people were gluttonous or whatever. She just really loved making food that was fresh and food that was flavoursome and sharing it with friends and bringing people together. It was a way of kind of connecting all of their friends. And as as a kid in the 70s, when there was a lot of, you know, really horrendous food stuff going on. It was, it was, you know, a lot of the, in Australia especially, there was this whole thing with ham and pineapple and sticks and all that kind of stuff. She didn't do it. it there was none of that going on. It was always beautifully fresh and we would have to go to the markets to get it because back then the kind of food that she would want to serve wasn't readily available at your supermarkets like they are now in Australia. Back then it was very, very meat and three veg and that's all you had. But she always, you know, she'd make her um, 
even her salad dressings from scratch and get the most beautiful butter lettuce to go with it and things like that. When really back in that time, the only lettuce you could usually get was an iceberg. So she was a little bit ahead of her time like that, but we did not eat like that every day. We would pretty much have, you know, the old 70s stuff the rest of the time, but the dinner parties, next level. It was just beautiful. Loved it. I want to backtrack there just a little bit. Uh, What is ham pineapple on a stick? (laughs) It's pretty horrendous. It's like a a ham steak cut into little square cubes and a piece of pineapple stuck on a stick. And then it's like an hors d'oeuvre. And and they serve around a plate. It's horrendous. I don't know. 70s food always makes me think of tinned shrimp and bottled Thousand Island dressing. And then you whack that in a half an avocado and there's your, there's your shrimp cocktail, your prawn cocktail. You know, it's kind of a little bit not quite right. My mum never entertained, so I never had the pleasure um, of having tinned shrimp. Mm. Yeah, and, yeah, um, very special. Thousand Island dressing wasn't that bad, I remember. I don't want to be controversial right off the start, but I was going to say, are you a pineapple on a pizza kind of person or no? Now, this is this is major controversy in my house. So my husband, Paul, is obsessed with pineapple on pizza. My Good on you, Paul. Yeah, my sons and I are... It's all sorts of wrong. Yeah, just no, no pineapple on a pizza. Never. I, I don't do it. Admittedly, every now and again, because he makes brilliant pizza. He does the, he takes, you know, really labours over the, the pizza dough and um, up at, at a family probably we've got in the country, we, we've got a, a wood fire pizza oven. So, you know, he labours over the kind of um, heat for it and all that kind of stuff. And when he makes his one with the lot and chili on it and things like that, and there's pineapple, I will sneak a piece, and I quite um, secretly <laughs> enjoy it. But yeah, I won't let him listen go. to this now. Mm, That'll throw my him. argument. Out. <laughs> I'm going to Google search him and stalk him, and then send him a link. <laughs> um, did you get the entertaining bug, so to speak, from your mum? Definitely, yes. I love it. Love to entertain. Love. I love to cook. I love to entertain. I. I especially like bringing people together and creating a space where that can happen at home or even, you know, our, our family is a, it's a pretty big family. We used to have, um, more like Christmas time, we had 45 of us for Christmas lunch. And we used to have the Christmas lunch, and this was, mum used to do this too, because they moved up to the country when I was in my twenties and they had a, a big marquee that we would get for Christmas because we'd have all the family and they lived on a on a property with a whole lot of, you know, 40 acres of bush and in the Australian bush. So it's kind of, it's really picturesque, but it had a, a big dam, more like a lake and a boat on that. And there were always shenanigans going on. Someone had fallen in the lake and, you know, there was a cricket batch after lunch always out in the front lawn and that kind of thing. But the food was always divine and we'd all get together and cook the food. And the the thing that actually really feeds my soul more than the food on those occasions are the memories we, we created with all of the family together, all of the cousins and the, you know, now as adults, often families drift apart a bit and it's kept us all together, those beautiful memories. And the food is what binds us as well. It's been quite a wonderful experience to be able to entertain and keep your family connected because 
the the result of that is that my family are also my best friends. I love a good din- dinner party, so I think we're all kindred spirits here. And uh, I wanted to ask, so how is the way that you entertain and throw a dinner party different from the way that your mum, or is it the same? Well, I will I will have a big grazing board beforehand with drinks, and I think the change that's not so much that it's different from my mum. It's different from what she did in the 70s, I suppose, because it's the way we live now, especially in Australia, is quite open plan. So, you know, in most houses in Australia, you won't have a a sectioned off kitchen. You'll have the kitchen that's open to a living space. And so people are cooking there and you're you're talking as the cooking's happening and people will join in and assist. And so a big grazing board, instead of sitting down to a formal kind of entree, main kind of thing, it's more a big... Uh, graze that happens and then you'll sit down for the main course but you're kind of all meandering around it's a bit more informal these days than what I used to see happening in the house as I was growing up the other thing that never happens now with me that always happened with mum is there are never any leftovers we all eat so much and we just you know and there used to always be some chocolate cheesecake the next day in the fridge the other thing is that if there is anything left over at the end of the night I'll send it home with people because I know the next day I don't need to eat it again I need to send it home with somebody else I've you know I've had my fill that's enough let's move on to something else the next day but there were always leftovers in the fridge for me as a child after a dinner party and they happened oh, look, it would be fortnightly that she would have different groups of friends over for a dinner party. So in relation to French food, I wanted to ask about when you were growing up, do you think, so Americans had Julia Charles, it was a huge influence on them for French food. In Australia, who did the Aussies have? Oh, we, well, without a doubt, the the biggest influence um, on French food in Australia through my younger years from the 70s onwards was Gabriel Gatte. He was just, oh, and he's just such a, a warm and generous person with his time for anyone that wants to immerse in French culture. He's just so wonderful. His way of dealing with French food too kind of demystified it, I think, for a lot of people because before that, French food seemed, and it still, and it was, very, very complex. But he would get onto shows, on TV shows like The Midday Show, or we had this um, we had this show called The Mike Walsh Show, and we had another one with Bert Newton Show. These are Australian kind of, you know, um, uh, talk show hosts and of their day. And he would get on their shows and he would cook and he would happily play the fool sometimes and be the butt of their jokes or, you know, he would, he would do anything that it took to really demystify and bring French culture to Australians. And he did a brilliant job of it because we now – There's so much French culture here in Melbourne. Well, getting back to Gabrielle, we both had the pleasure of interviewing him on our podcast. Listeners, uh, Louise has an amazing podcast, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, getting on to Gabrielle, what was it like for you to interview him? Oh, he was lovely. He really was very chatty. Um, We've got some mutual friends and... um, but apart from that, it's a, it's a fairly small community, the French community in Melbourne. And whilst I'm clearly from my accent, I'm not French, but I'm fairly involved in that community. So it it wasn't um, 
it wasn't a big stretch for me to say, how about a chat on the podcast? And he could not have been more uh, obliging. And he really, even in the um, podcast chat, I found out information about him, even though I'd done my research and I'd grown up with him on my screens in the TV room, he really gave me an insight into his kind of world like you know you know the the fact that he um the way in which he had purposefully um gone about wanting to bring french culture and french food to australians it kind of at the time just looked like it happened just by osmosis but it was a, a actual you know he had a purpose of wanting to do that for us You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Do you have a passion for one particular French dish, ingredient or cooking technique? Add to that, do you have a story to tell? Well, I'd love to hear it. And I'm sure many of our Fabulously Delicious audience would too. So get in touch, slide into my DMs. Hmm, I've always wanted to say that. On Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously, as I'd love to hear from you and hopefully have you on fabulously delicious so your parents adored france um and you told me that your mum that she loved it so much that when you mentioned before that she's passed but when she passed she had a special request i hope it's okay if i ask you this what was that special (laughs) request so we were going to be going to spend her 70th birthday in france with the whole lot of the family that she was taking over with um with her and unfortunately, she passed away two years shy of that um, unexpectedly. And so, but, but but she knew she was quite ill, so she knew that she was going. And so she requested that the family, this was to force my father over there, I think, with all the family, that she requested that her ashes be scattered in the Seine. And uh, so the family, um, then we all went over there, 20 of us together, and um, and we met there, and you're not actually allowed to scatter ashes in the no. sea, as we discovered. So we didn't do that. Um, but we did find a little private um, spot, and which was right next to the sen. And then, uh, and then, yes, we um, we scattered her ashes there, and then a um, and then the, that very next year, in the next winter, that whole area was flooded. So her ashes ended up in the sen anyway. Yeah. So we all ended. We all went over there, and we absolutely loved it. We had such fun. Um, we all stayed in different areas around the Moray, and uh, different places, I should say, all within the Moray, all quite close to the St Paul um, area. And that's because if you've got twenty family together for a whole long time in the one house, I think we would all have all killed each other by the end. So we decided it'd be best for us to stay in separate places, but have a really close communal meeting point which we did every day and we'd all go off to do different things and then we went for a week after that down to the Loire Valley and stayed for a week in Chinon as well and that was just exquisite and um, we all immersed ourselves in the food and the culture and I had been there a, a couple of times before or a number of times before but for much of the family it was their first trip and so um yeah, it was great. It was great fun. I've had the pleasure of being a guest uh, on your podcast. Tell us, what is it called and what is it about? So I started a podcast during COVID uh, when I couldn't get out and couldn't plan a trip to travel called Lulabelle's Francophiles. And it's all about France, as the name suggests. But it was really just for, to well, say... It could have been about own. Frank. It could, have been, it could have been about some files on a bloke called Frank, yes, but it's not. 
Um, so, yeah, and I just chat to different guests about their connection to France, their favourite foods, uh, the things that really float their boat about France or Paris or different regions that they might like to travel to. Particular, Sometimes I've spoken to um, people who have a particular uh, region that they're obsessed with or perhaps they live there. Sometimes they're Australian, American, French, English, but they've all got a different story to tell and it's always with a lovely uh, a French flavour through it. Their favourite food, if they like French music, and uh, we talk about all sorts of different French um, French things that I'd like to go over and engage myself again in French shenanigans, as I like to call it. What do you love about the people that you're interviewing the most? I love what they give to me. You know, it's all about me, really. It's all about me. But I love how it makes me feel. You know, I, I, I love that I can um, share with other people and I didn't quite realise that this was going to happen this way. Um, for me, it was to feed my soul. And the feedback I've had from people from all around the world is how they adjust, that they feel like they can escape. And they've, for a little momentary part of, you know, a little moment in time, they feel like they've had a little escape to France. And in this period when life is a little bit difficult or a lot difficult for some people, that's a really lovely thing to do, I think, to be able to escape, and I find it helps me to escape as I have a very busy life um, apart from um, the podcast. Um, you know, I've got kids and stepkids and full-time work and a, and a full-time voluntary job as well, virtually. And so then this is my thing that is just to feed my soul. But the flow-on effect has been so much more rewarding than that in knowing and hearing back from people every you know, from all over the place about how much it actually feeds them and helps them escape, which is, um, yeah, it, like I said, very rewarding. Do you want to support Fabulously Delicious, the podcast, and learn more about French food? Then join me and some of the wonderful people cooking it and producing it. Hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. This is your weekly French food news. Friday the 6th of May saw the opening of a gastronomic and wine complex in the capital of France's Burgundy region, Dijon. Inaugurated by former French President Francois Hollande, who stated that the project was not unique in France, it's unique in the world. This project began after UNESCO added the French gastronomic meal to its intangible cultural heritage list in 2010. The site in Dijon spreads across 6.5 hectares and combines modern structures with buildings from medieval times. With an overall project cost of 250 million euros, visitors can wander through four sections on the history of French meals, baking, burgundy vineyards and the art of cooking. Food checks, limits on gaps prices and increased benefits are amongst some of the measures set to be taken by the government here in France. The French government is set to legislate a range of new measures to help people in France with rising inflation and the cost of living. The issue of inflation, the government has said, is not a disaster but it is obliging us to act. 8% inflation like Germany is seeing is at least a month's salary. The role of the state is to protect French people, they added. Fracra is vanishing from menus during an unprecedented crisis that has seen some manufacturers begin to consider reducing portions. 
At the heart of the problem is a bird flu epidemic that has been sweeping across the country and Europe for months. It's already devastated the country's poultry industry, but now it threatens its restaurant menus as well. According to the French Agricultural Ministry, the country has had to kill more than 16 million poultry since the epidemic first started in November 2021 to try and control the disease. Foie gras production in France is expected to drop by up to 50% this year as the epidemic affects 80% of foie gras producers in the country. On to today's topic, the Comte de Canard. Uh, for those listening that might not know, tell us what is a Comte de Canard and can you describe it for us? So a Comte de Canard is the leg portion or it, it looks like what a chicken Maryland is really, but it's for a duck. Now, can you, uh, hold on, now we need to explain. Not everybody's going to know what a chicken Maryland is. <laughs> Um, it's yeah. not, well, it's actually a suburb in Australia, in Sydney, I think it is, called Maryland. It's not chicken that comes from Maryland. In oh, yes, of course, of course, of course. Um, I forget or, how Australian sometimes that I am. <laughs> but actually, we call it here in France a quiz. A quiz. E-U-I-S-S-E. I think I said that right. Quiz. You have. Quiz. Yes, yes. Okay, there you go. So it's the leg and the thigh. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's why the frog's legs are called a quiz as well. So it's the, it's the leg and the thigh. Yes. And so um, it's it's a, a leg and a thigh that is um, par-cooked and then it goes from the par-cooking, it goes... Um, then into um, oh, before you par cook it, actually you you do it, you you rub it, you salt it, you you know salt it um, fairly heavily. And the recipe that I follow, I refrigerate it overnight to to get that to be really to get that in it. But it, it basically the confit process is a preservation process. So it's what was traditionally used. It what was it what was traditionally used. Um, to to preserve the duck when they you know they they really just uh, didn't have ready-made meals every night of the week historically or traditionally sometime you know, hundreds of years ago so they would preserve the food and they'd par cook it and then put it into um, duck fat into barrels or you know the one that I saw when I was in this little French traditional farmhouse where I asked the owner where I had lunch this day, where I had the best meal I ever had in my entire life, and it happened to include a confit de canard. And I asked them about it. And so traditionally, what they did was they put the confit de canard, the the duck legs, into barrels, and they'd pour the duck fat in around it. So it had par cooked already a little bit, and then they'd put it in the barrels, and the the hot duck fat around it would continue the cooking process really, really slowly as it cooled. And they would store those barrels under the house. And then once a week, they would pull out a barrel and break open the barrel, and there would be all these confit canards in, in, you know, congealed duck fat. And then they would pull each one out of the duck fat and then fry it off to crisp it up. And then then that's it. So, you know, they've, that that's where they would par cook it first and then they would just really reheat really by frying it off and that would make that beautiful crispy duck skin. And then they'd cook their, their potatoes that they had parboiled, they'd cook them off and finish them off in the duck fat that was um, left over from the, the confit. Is it from a particular region in France? Way. Yes, it's from the Aquitaine region and where I had it was in the middle of the Dordogne, which is 
really known for a lot of their uh, duck uh, produce. Um, you know, the foie gras is is um, very much uh, very common in the Dordogne, but the um, the confit um, in that region is on a menu nearly everywhere you go. Um, or I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm generalising, but it's very, very common in that region. I mean, of course, you can get it in Paris and other places throughout France now too, but in that region, that's traditionally where it's from. And you'll get the other, the rest of the the uh, the vegetables done with the the duck fat as well in that region. It's there's a region called Gascony. Is that right? Yes. Or is that a region? I, I don't get confused. So the Nouvelle Aquitaine, is that a region or a department or is Gascony the department? I'm with you. No, I get – because they changed them. So Gascony, uh, I'm not sure whether that's a department or a region. And and also that's some – historically that covered a particular area. I get confused as to which bit, which ones are departments, which ones are regions, which ones are, um, oh, they've even got, there's three different layers now. But there's, you know, there were some that were historically um, regions or departments that are now folded in to become part of others. I'm I'm absolutely hopeless with it, hopeless, hopeless. And I'm I, I'm actually, next time I'm, I'm back in France, I am hoping to get that sorted for myself. So I'm really on top of that because I'm hopeless with the geography of that. Well, especially if you're coming for such a thing as like looking for a house, you want to make sure that you've got it in the right region. I do know that I often say, because we, we talk about, because we're in the Nouvelle Aquitaine as well, but um, uh, we're in the Vienne and uh, the Vienne is also a city in France, but it's also the French, so it's the name for the city it's the name for the region that we live in. The city, though, is not in this region. So ah. that's somewhere else. But then it's also the way that they pronounce um, uh, Vienna. Oh, really? In oh, Yeah, so they call it Vienna. So that's hilarious. So it's like, you know, it could be here, it could be there, or it could be in, in, in Austria or wherever Vienna is. Yes. So Gascony, is it Gascony? I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. I think that's how we pronounce it in English. I've just looked it up. So Gascony is a province. So now we have to deal with departments, regions, and provinces. So that's, that's okay. Right. It's not I complicated kn- at all. I knew there was a triple layer and I, yeah, no idea. Are there, you've mentioned fragois, but are there other dishes that we might know from that region of France? Uh, in the Dordogne, this particular meal, I went with some girlfriends there and we were treated to this six-course lunch in, in a rustic farmhouse and it was all traditional um, dishes. We had a uh, soup de lait, which is a garlic soup that was just exquisite. Then there was a – now, how would, how did they put it? It was a um, – a duck gizzard salad, but they didn't tell us that it was duck gizzards, and which is probably a good thing because I probably wouldn't have eaten geezers. it. Geezers. They call them geezers. Geezers, yeah. And so geezers. it's salad de guise de canard, and it was just really amazing, amazing, amazing. I would never have thought um, that I would be eating duck gizzards, and they're kind of slippery and but, oh, so, so exquisite. And then it had the confit de canard. It also had uh, then they've got certain uh, torts and different gateaux. And, um, but then the other dessert that they um, that they have there, which they they love, is uh, the creme, just the 
you know, your old-fashioned creme brulee. Um, but also the cheeses. So down in that part of uh, France and even over into the Basque region, which is not far from there, um, the brebi cheese is really common. So in the southern part of France, the, the brebi is just a, a beautiful, beautiful cheese, which is a sheep's cheese. It's just lovely. So it's a little bit different from up north where they've got more cow dairy, um, when you get down south, they also cook more with duck fat and olive oil and not so much with the butter. The butters are normally up further up north, like you know, Normandy and, and those kinds of regions where they've got a lot more dairy um, going on. Apart from food, what else is there that's fabulous or something that a visitor must do in that region? In the Dordogne, you must go to Dom. Dom is spelled D-O-M-M-E and Dom looks over the whole valley and it looks over this uh, this other um, uh, Le Roque-Ajac, I think it is. I'll have to look it up. But that it, it, this other village that's down, down the bottom on the, the river there and we went to a Michelin star restaurant there um, in La Roca called uh, La Belle Etoile. And going from the beautiful rusticness of this farmhouse lunch, then to a day or two later going to the, the Michelin starred restaurant La Belle Etoile was just, it was like chalk and cheese, but both experiences were exquisite and, and you know, a foodie heaven for someone like me. And there was one one dish at the Ballet Trois. When 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 we all came back to Australia, we had a dinner party. And we tried to cook something that we had tasted while we were away, and we all did different things. But I tried to make this. Uh, it was a mousse that was so light; it was like you were eating air, which sounds ridiculous. Why would you just want to eat air? But it was like a it was a beetroot mousse that had kind of a lime flavor through it, and all these other flavors through it that we had at La Belle Etoile, and we made it, and it was fabulous. It wasn't quite like theirs. In fact, it was nothing like theirs. Well, it it it, it had sh- it had hints of La Belle Etoile, but it wasn't quite like theirs because we made it up. And on the day in the restaurant, we we kind of all wrote down the things that we the flavors we thought we could um find in this in this mousse that we were that we were eating and then we came home we then or then I I cooked it I had beetroot everywhere and I had you know I was putting it through stockings and buying fresh stockings and washing them and all these sorts of because the muslin was not quite right it needed to be finer and yeah it was it was a wonderful thing to do when we got home was to try and emulate the fabulous flavors it's never quite the same when you're not there using their actual fresh produce but it was still a wonderful thing to do the other thing is there's some beautiful hold on, hold on one second i was just going to say listeners did you just notice that i said apart from food what else is there that's fabulous <laughs> I'm about to- just went on a huge rant about food <laughs> i know i brought it all the way back to food but one <laughs> thing else apart from food is there are the most gorgeous well, the most of the, the Plus Beau Village, uh, the Plus Beau Village is a, uh, there's a, an organisation called Le Plus Beau Village and there are particular criteria to become a Plus Beau Village and they are dotted all over France but the area that has the highest density of Plus Beau Village is in the Dordogne region and so if you're going there, there are picturesque villages all over the place. So it's really worth going to the website for Le Plupe Village if you're going to that area and checking some out. I stayed in one called Montpazier, which is a beautiful walled, a medieval uh, 
walled village um, with the ramparts around it. And it did have great food, I've got to say as well. But apart from the food, it just looks beautiful. And they have markets, you know, at least once a week, all these villages have a market. So when you go into the market, we actually found at the Montpazier market, there was a woman that was selling the most divine handmade but kind of rustic kind of clothes that we all loved. So, you know, there are things to do there that you you don't really know until you get there. Just sometimes meandering can be the best thing because you stumble across stuff that you can't plan for. And one of the things you can plan for is to make sure you see some of these blue beverages and to book yourself into, you know, particular restaurants and stuff. But must always leave yourself some time for meandering because that's when um, that's when the little delicious and the pockets of brilliance just happen to occur that you that you never expected. Uh, one other thing we went to see when I was there was uh, these, and I never thought of that part of France as being prehistoric. But there are these prehistoric caves that you go into, and they've got. Uh, they're completely dark, completely black, but on the ceiling you can see the marks of where they've had candles burning while they did these amazing cave paintings of bison and buffalo, whatever it was that was roaming uh, that region at the time. And it was quite extraordinary. It, it really took my breath away, but it was something, again, very unexpected. Um, yeah. Uh, back to the Compi de Canard, what's the history of the Compi de Canard? Is it, does it have an origin story, so to speak? Well, it, it did. It has got its origin in Gascony, which you mentioned before. Um, but it's, it's you know, a way of what was traditionally um, done as a way of perverse preserving food. So it wasn't just, a confit is not just really for canard. So that is a way of pre- preserving food that was used for all sorts of meats. Um, but th- this is now probably the most common um, about preserving it in its own fat. And there is, um, you know, I think for, for people that had um, limit limit. Um, limitations on the amount of food they had to then have it preserved to, to eat at any time was very important. Also, they wouldn't have had that much food. So we eat so much these days. Historically, they would have had that meal and it would have given them so much energy and got them through, but they probably wouldn't have had a big meal either side of it or even the next day. Um, and so it would have really sustained them. Whereas we have that, if we have that every day, you will know all about it because you will not fit into your pants for very long because it's really, it does pack on the pounds. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support them making it fabulously delicious, then there are many ways you can do this. But one of those ways is through Patreon, the link of which is in the show notes for this episode. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can receive exclusive content just for you. So check it out. I'm sure you will enjoy. And also, it's a way of you supporting me and the podcast and more fabulous French foodies. So what better thing to do than support Fabulously Delicious by becoming a Patreon member? But there's controversy, you mentioned before foie gras, and there's controversy around that. But isn't the confit de canard just as controversial? Because uh, from my understanding, wasn't it a way of preserving the ducks that were used 
for for foie gras. Yeah, that's right. And they had so much duck that it was a way of preserving it so that they would have something, you know, so that they wouldn't be wasting it because they, they didn't have a lot of other food either back when this was originally done. I suppose the thing with foie gras and, and with um, confit like that, and, and I must admit these days a confit is not necessarily always from a duck that has, um, a confit de canard, I should say, is not always from a, a, a duck that has been um, used to produce um, uh, foie gras, but they're, there are sometimes, and I heard Rick Stein say this actually on one of his episodes, there are sometimes some things about our food production um, that he, he said he just doesn't find very nice. And he said, you know, and they are, there are ways of that we sometimes um, deal with animals that, that potentially um, is, it could be done differently. Um, and I understand that. I, I, you know, I'm not vegetarian. I do understand that there are there are ways in which our, our animals are handled. And I, I would always, um, you know, press for that. To, well, and and be absolutely not negotiable that it needs to be um, with care and humanely. I don't know about um, whether or not they still need to. I, I don't know. Do they still need to always have? in the Dordogne region, the confit de canard coming from a duck that was used for, it also has um, has been able to supply um, the ingredients for a foie gras. I don't know if they still do that. I'm not sure. You mentioned before that you've made it yourself. Mm-hmm. How do you make a confit de canard? Now, I've, got, I've made some notes for myself here because I want to make sure I get it right. But, I get, well, whilst the house that we went to at the Dordogne, they, they put it in a barrel and under the house. And clearly, in Australia, I'm not whacking a whole lot of duck legs in a barrel under my house until going to pull it out in winter. I have no that is, understanding why you like, <laughs> That is not going to happen. We're not doing Did that. Did you not buy a barrel while you were uh, in yeah, the I know. I should have specifically for it. But I... Um, I haven't been able, obviously, then to prepare it in quite the same way as was traditionally done in France. But I have made a confit de canard, which made my taste buds sing. So I did need to plan ahead. I got the duck and salted it and rubbed the the salt into the skin all over. And as I said earlier on, I I refrigerate it before cooking overnight. And the recipe that I um, followed, I don't know where I got it now because I've handwritten it. Um, But it... It actually um, cooks the duck legs in wine slowly over heat and then straight away transfers to the oven or um, or alternatively refrigerating in all the duck fat. So I do the refrigeration me- me- um, method and then um, reheat later. So either the oven straight away if you don't have the time or chilling to reheat later is good, but if you've got the time, for the longer version with the extra chilling time, the flavour will be will be worth it. It's a little bit like what I was saying earlier on with my mum with making a jus and how she took so much time. I wanted to make sure she got the flavour into it. Putting it into, it's like being in a duck stock almost, the way that you do it with the wine and the, and the fat that comes out of it and refrigerating it and letting it all congeal and then cook, it kind of gets right into, into the um the the meat and then the flavor is much fuller than than it would be much more intense than it would be if you just um, put straight to the oven so it, it kind of uh, gives it an extra depth which I love and then um, the reheating with the reheating the idea is to just warm 
the duck portions. You don't, you're not cooking them again. That you've kind of, they're cooked at this point now. So the best way is to pan fry and you don't need any more oil either. So I pan fry in a dry pan because it's got congealed duck fat all over it. Like it's not going to stick. So you, um, you just place the portions and I put them skin down because you don't want the meat to dry out too much or, or to cook through too much. You're really just warming that. So put it skin down and you leave it, have it on a kind of a medium heat because you also don't want that to burn. You want it to be able to get through into the middle of your duck portion. And then you don't move them until they're a little crispy and you can see that they're crisping up and then you turn and you do the other side and then voila, done. And then you can cook up some potatoes that you might have parboiled whilst you're doing that. You talked earlier about planning. You plan ahead. You get your potatoes parboiled. Cook them off in some of that duck fat. And I just like to do it with um, either some green beans or I do love a French butter lettuce with a little bit of a – I do an avocado oil and Dijon mustard vinaigrette that I like to make and I just drizzle that over the butter lettuce to go on the side. Nice. Sounds good. I'm coming over for some confit de canard. Yeah, yeah, it's yum. You mentioned what you eat with it, but possibly the most important question is, what do you drink with it? Oh, anything. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, no, I, I, yeah, no, no, we're not up in Normandy. But, no, I do I do like it with um, – See, duck duck can go either way. You can you can really have it with white or red. Um, I wouldn't have it with something that's too strong, like a Shiraz. I love like a, you know a Cab Merlot if you're in Australia. That that would be a lovely thing to have with it, or um, just a, a Pinot Gris, which would be lovely too. Mm. Fabulous. Uh, it's a dish in its own right, but it's also an ingredient in other dishes. So, what other dishes use duck de confit, canard de confit? I don't use the 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 confit de canard as I cook it, um, like what we just talked about, and then go and put it into another dish. But I know my husband Paul, he um, makes a mean cassoulet, and he'll use the confit cut, and he'll he'll but he tends to cut it up and pull the duck off. No, uh, you're not yeah, supposed to do. That. I know, but he, well, we get the bones in it. It's still on the bone, but it's not the whole portion in one lot in the cassoulet because and then, you know, with the other pork sausage and the cannellini beans and all Yeah, sorry everybody, but you can't see this because we're not recording. But my lovely golden retriever has had enough of me recording this podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just jumped up on he's me and he's licking you. my face, which Louis can see. Oh, that's um, gorgeous. You all can't. It's terrible. Louis, you must sit down. Come on. No, sit down. We've got not got long to go now. You just sit down and then I'll let you outside. It won't be long, all right? You stay there. Good boy. Just another 10 minutes, okay? There you he's go. so another beautiful. 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Louise, uh, we recently talked about the Blanca de Vaux, uh, the Jambon Percy, and now the Comte de Canars. So why is it, do you think, that we've not grown up with being taught these dishes? Why is it that the Coquelin and the Boeuf Bourguignon are so popular? Mm. Do you know, I think when we were talking a bit earlier about how Gabriel Gatte was bringing French cuisine and French culture to Australians, Prior to that, and this is a little bit about my mum's dinner parties as well, it it seemed to be very complex. French food was always fancy food. And the French restaurants that we have in Australia, and I know this was the case in the US as well from a couple of people I've spoken to over there, when you went to a French restaurant, you went, it was fancy. It was, you know, all the stops were pulled out to make, to really knock your socks off with this food. And 
it was always done uh, in a way that was quite formal. And then this kind of movement back to uh, back to food origins and and to the to the the flavoursome the flavours of 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 I suppose well it's all real French but the 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 authentic French uh, food from the regions has really brought about now this whole connection to uh, French traditional food now, and I think that. Some people who've been quite instrumental in this have been people like Rick Stein, who has travelled, you know, for, for a very long time now, you know, 20, 30 years, through all the regions of France. But what he does every time is celebrate local produce and local foods and local dishes. And so those kinds of chefs, and, and I suppose to an, to an extent a little bit, it was Paul Bocuse as well, who he would always do those beautifully beautiful formal and fancy foods, but he would actually have highlighted the, the the French rustic foods as well so from the from the probably the the um, the period of time that I've been um, really obsessed with with French food I've watched a load of Rick Stein but there there are now more and more um, f- uh, chefs who are really connecting with the French regions and not just the stuff that's in the fancier restaurants. And we're getting the benefit of that. Now we're learning more. Louise, uh, finally, the question I ask everybody that's been on Fabulously Delicious, and that is, what is the most fabulous thing about France for you? Oh, goodness. The most fabulous thing about France for me Oh, do I have to pick just one thing? Yes. No, you can have as many as you like. You've got one minute. One minute. Look, I think I think for me it's it's the it's the language and the people. I I love hearing people speak in French. I love it when I've been there for a week or so, I start to think in French. I love that connection with the language. I love the the people. They are I've never noticed, and I'm sure they're out there, but I've never had an interaction with them, the arrogant French person, which, you know, is there's a rumour that they're out there and I'm sure that there's some truth in that it's based in, but I've never seen it. And I wonder if that's because, you, you know, if you try and speak the language with them, they try with you. Um, but the people and the language, and I love the architecture. So for me, the architecture in France is often... Um, it's often the art. So, you know, you go to galleries everywhere, but for me, the architecture is the art. I'm just wandering around looking at buildings, and I don't care if you're in the city or the country. I don't care if it's a chateau or a little hut. They're just, there is a particular romance, I think, that comes with the architecture in France, which I just adore. Um, and, of course, you know, if you're eating French food in amongst all of that, well, all's the better, really. Well, Louis back again, and um, he wants to know why you never mentioned him oh, in your reason so for beautiful. fabulous things. And that's yes. because it's not a podcast about golden retrievers, okay? Um, no. Louise's dogs sat underneath her desk the whole time whilst recording, it's I've been still told, there. and yes. behaved, and you have not. Yes. So thank you, Louise. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Finally, uh, can you tell us again? I think you mentioned it before, but just briefly tell us again what your podcast is called and where we can 
find it. It's called Lulabelle's Francophiles. It's on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you find your uh, good podcasts, like, just like yours. Oh, merci beaucoup. <laughs> Louise Pichard, thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Oh, merci beaucoup. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved every moment. Oh, merci beaucoup. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!